Growing up, I had a church friend who had a mansion for a house. He had a regulation-sized tennis court on his property. I mean, that's very unique. And then, of course, you know, you can't let the tennis court go to waste. And so what they did was not only, you know, use the tennis court, but they built uh, basketball hoops on both ends. So basically, it's a full-court basketball court. Not only that, though, but he had another half-court basketball court on the other side of his property. You know, one that uh, the, the, the hoop lowered and raised so that we could jam on it when we were 12, 13 years old. He had all of the latest toys, all of the latest electronic gadgets, so going over to his house was like going over to Disneyland. And we grew up going to church and uh, youth group together, and it seemed like almost every weekend, you know, a handful of us would want to go spend the night over at his house. Um, you know, just, just imagine. It was incredibly fun. Uh, and I remember one time in junior high youth group, me and my friend, we came up with the grand plan. Hey, let's go stay over at your house, and then tomorrow we can all go to SeaWorld together. Uh, right? It was a brilliant plan. And so what happened was well, he went and got his parents okay. My other friends went and got their parents okay. And then I went to go get my parents okay. And they said no. After youth group ended, they all went to his house, and I drove home with my parents. Naturally, I was discouraged, but I was more than discouraged. I was bitter, bitter towards my parents, bitter towards their rules. We had this plan to have so much fun, and they didn't let me have this fun. I mean, in the moment, not only did I feel that that uh, they thought it was best that I not go, right? That's just simple decision-making skills, right? Not only that, though, but I thought that they were out to hamper my fun. I was so convinced that they were the fun police, and they didn't want me to have fun or friends at all. And so I blamed them. I blamed them big time. Never mind they had let me go over to his house and sleep over so many times before. Never mind that they were the ones who wanted me to have these friendships in the first place and then see those friendships cultivated. Never mind they provided so many opportunities for my friends to come over to our place and spend the night. Never mind that they, as parents, had their schedules to fulfill. They had things to do, a house to run, rest to have. Never mind they knew that when I went to sleepovers, it took me a few days to recover. You know, you want to stay up until as long as your eyelids would allow. No, in that moment, my parents were only and undeniably Grinches out to steal away my fun and my friendships. Through their character and through their laws, I determined they just wanted me to live in a prison of their law. This is typical tween stuff. And let's be honest, we all to some degree still feel those ways toward God, don't we? His character and His law. When we define certain things to be good or we want to take joy in certain things and God says no, where He speaks against us. In that moment towards my parents, you know, I determined that they were not trustworthy. I determined that they had no love for me. I determined that they didn't understand me. It's typical, typical tween stuff, typical us stuff. And because of faulty thinking, sinful thinking, because of my lack of ability to understand them, 
my own forgetfulness of how they were really for me, you see that the seeds of division were planted. And you can see that if those seeds germinated, it's only a matter of time before those seeds became rotten trees that bore fruits for disunity. And the sinful response then would be burn all their rules, curse all their rules, curse them even. And that here is the worst part of my rebellion in that moment. I maligned their character. I thought they had evil intentions before me in their laws, in their rules. Well, again, as many, in many ways, we are always angsty teens toward God. And if we don't get what we might define as necessary, you know, we don't see straight and we judge God's law even to be bad. We even go so far as to malign His character. In our sinfulness, when the rule comes, when the judgment comes, we determine the laws to be bad. Friends, our passage actually speaks to that situation. If you think God and His rules are bad, our passage speaks to that situation. Paul doesn't call us, Paul the author of the book of Romans that we're looking at, he doesn't call us angsty teens, but he draws out this principle that we can always apply to our lives if we think that God's law and God Himself is bad. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, and we are in verses 7 to 12. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. And if you're taking, main, uh, taking notes here, the main point is that God and His law are never to be blamed. God and His law are never to be blamed. Only our sin. That's the main point for today. God and His law are never to be blamed. Only our own sin. I'll go ahead and read Romans chapter 7, verses... Actually, I'll go ahead and read 1 to 12, so that way we get more of the context here. Definitely want you guys to be opening the Bible. That way you can see what, what, what I'm saying comes right out of the Scripture here. I'll start off at verse number 1 of chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she remarries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had been, not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive or living apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. If you're dropping into this chapter here, we see clearly that Paul is striving to clarify things to the Roman Christians here. 
You could hear it in the language in verse 1. Or do you not know? 7.4. Likewise, my brothers, you. And then in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Here, basically, what Paul's doing is he's clarifying the fact that because God is a gracious God, as, as we've seen so clearly in the gospel, uh, he wants us to know that we are free from the law's demands. God, according to His grace, did speak against us according to His law, right? We, His created people had sinned against Him. We had earned for ourselves just condemnation, even condemnation in hell, the Bible says, right? We rebelled against our Creator, and that's treason. We know this in, in kingdoms and things like this. Same with God. And so God spoke against us in His law. He held over us the law's demands. But He's also a God of grace, so in His grace, He gives us Jesus Christ. He sends His eternal Son to live the righteous life we could not, right? He's fulfilling the demands of the law. He dies on the cross, so a death has been carried out. Instead of us, though, it's Christ. And so instead of being bound to the law that spoke against us, condemning us and judged us, now we are bound to the Savior of grace. And so we're free. That's what he's saying here. And the people that he's speaking to here, they were self-righteous. They were moralistic. They thought that they could earn God's grace, so to speak, or earn salvation. And so they hear this gospel of grace. I hear what you're saying, Paul, but I have all these objections. Paul, of course, was a missionary. He you know, went all around the Mediterranean, uh, planting churches, having conversations with these Jews that he was very much a part of. And so he's clarifying for the Roman Christians here, look, I know you have an objection, but let me answer that for you of why the gospel of grace makes sense. He says here that in, previous, in a previous chapter, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a summary of the gospel. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so now anybody who repents of their sins and turns to Jesus Christ, they can be justified or declared righteous with God. They are forgiven. They are adopted into his family and have a reconciled relationship with their very own maker. And so all that stuff that spoke against sinners who repent and believe, God sort of, in some ways, sets aside. We're going to talk more about what that means. So if you're, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, right? that's a story, the big story that you find yourself in, right here in the middle of. We have all sinned, but God in His grace has given us Christ, His Son, God, the Son, to die on the cross for our sins. And so this invitation is for you. If you want to be forgiven of your sins, repent of your sins and believe, and you will have all the benefits of this gracious God. Justification, right standing with God, new relationship with your maker. Now, if you are a Christian, have you ever wondered what your relationship to the law is like now? If we've been freed from the law, what's our relationship with the law, right? Because God still commands us. I think a natural instinct is to just say, well, let's just get rid of the law. Now that we have died to the law and its judgments, let's just get rid of all of God's commands in general. That's what it's called. That's what it's like to live in this freedom. That's the anti-law position, anti-law. If you want to learn a new word, uh, you can write down antinomianism. It, it literally just means anti-law or against the law. You live in a culture that says, whatever, you know, we, just, we don't need to do anything now. We don't need to obey anything. That's anti-law. Uh, the Greek word for law is namos, and you hear that in nomian, anti-nomian. Anyways, moving on. Um, so you might have decided that the best thing to do is just to get rid of it. 
So you can remember, if you've been joining us, if you've been with us for the book of Romans, remember the way in which Paul describes the law. He actually couches it in all seemingly negative terms. 3.20, you don't have to turn there, you just uh, pay attention now. We can't be declared righteous by doing the law. Instead, we become conscious of sin through the law. Right, that sounds bad. 4.15, it says the law brings wrath. 5.20, it says the law increases the trespass. 6.14 says we are no longer under the law, right? So naturally we would say, okay, so what do we do with that? 7.4, our sinful passions have been aroused by the law. So we might go ahead and conclude, well, it's the law that's the problem because of my sin. It exposes sin, that means the law is the problem. So let's get rid of it. But again, uh, in our passage today, we have a clarification. God and his law are not to blame. God and his law are never to blame, particularly if you're looking at your own sin. God and his law are not to blame for your sin. His law is good. His law is good. Now, for some here, it might seem a little bit strange to, see, to say that the law is good, especially for you who are used to going against law. Right? To, hear the word, to hear the word, the law is good, you might just think like, whoever thinks, the law, whoever thinks laws are good? And in general, why would you Christians, right, if you're exploring Christianity, why would you think like, hey, you Christians, why do you want to obey God's law? I have known uh, a number of lawbreakers, spent a lot of time with some lawbreakers. I have been a lawbreaker, as I'm sure you guys have as well. But even to lawbreakers, the question is never, is law good? That's never the question. Let's say if you are a tween Right? The question is never, is law good? The question is, whose law is good? Right? Just think for a moment about the worst people you could ever think of, the most lawless people you could ever think of. Right? Most people might be thinking of, like, let's say, gangsters. Other people might be thinking of white-collar criminals who are just trying to get away with something else. Other people think of, let's say, a king who is a tyrant over his people. Right? He rules over his people with an iron fist. The question for all of those people is not, is law good? The question is, whose law is good, and which one are we going to obey? Gangsters live by the law of the street. And sometimes, if you don't obey the law, you die, according to their own internal code. White-collar criminals, do they live according to the law? Yes, it's the law of the expansion of their pocketbooks. If you're a tyrant, they do have a law. In fact, they, in fact, they legislate laws that benefit in this situation that I'm using, themselves and maybe not their own people. The question is not, is law good? The question is, whose law is good? And which one should we obey? So for the Christian, with God who is over us, of course God's laws are good. This is the testimony of those who follow God. I mean, you can just stop and think about it for a moment, logically. All right, where does God's law come from? If you're exploring God's law, where does God's law come from? It comes from the very being of God, God who is good, a God who is righteous, just, holy, and loving. You realize that God's law is a reflection of all that He is. All of those attributes that I just mentioned and more is reflected actually in His law. And here the context He's speaking of is, is uh, the law of Moses. So you think of the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But we can expand it to all of the Old Testament. We can expand it to even the New Testament as well. So just think about the whole Bible as being His law or His word. And if you want to know um, how God's law or how a person's laws might reflect their character, let me just encourage you to take time 
Um, maybe if you're upset with the authorities over you, just go ahead and take some time to draft your own law of your kingdom. And just think about, you know, okay, if someone were to kill in your family, you know, what, what's the punishment going to be? If someone were going to lie, what's the punishment going to be in your kingdom? And then all of a sudden you start realizing, like, oh, okay, like I actually stink at drafting my own kingdom's laws because I am not all holy, all righteous, all just, always loving, always pure. It's really simple. Just take the Ten Commandments, just begin uh, playing out those situations in your own home and see where you get with that. God's law is a reflection of all that God is. It's an extension of God's mind, of God's heart. Uh, and that's how some people in Christian history have described it, an extension of God's heart and His mind. In His law, we see God's heart. And what is the summary of the law? This is what Jesus says. He says, a summary of the law it hangs on these two things, love God and love your neighbor, made in God's image. So, okay, moving on. If, if God's word is an extension of God's mind and His heart, I therefore want to study it because I come to know the God of the law. I come to know Him. I can know Him and then love Him and His created people. So God's people, you realize, God's people, as they're growing, I recognize not perfectly, but God's people grow in a love for God's commands in His Word. Our scripture passage this morning is an example, one that's sung read from Psalm 19, verse 16. There King David says, I will delight in your statutes. And it's not that he's forcing himself to delight. He's delighting because it's worthy of being delighting in, worthy of delight in. Psalm 119, verse 103, a classic verse says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So it's clear. God's word is good. And of course it is because it comes from a good God. No matter if it exposes sin, God's word is good. No matter even if it stimulates sin, God is good. This is why Paul responds the way he does there in verse 7. Go ahead and look there. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? He's sort of posing this uh, person's objection, knowing that the people are going to have objections. He poses the question, and then he answers it himself. That he knows that people are going to say, are you saying that your gospel of grace says God's law is sin? He says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So natural objection is the law sin because it exposes sin and even stimulates sin. If you go back to verse 5, you see there that the law stimulates sin. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. They were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But he says the law still is not sin. Let's get it clear here. God and his law is not sin. So you realize that even in what the law does, God shows it to be good in exposing sin. Even in what the law does, he shows it to be good in exposing sin. And Paul is the example here. He didn't know what it was to covet until the law said, do not covet. Now, those of you who know Romans 7, uh, let me go on a little tangential point here. You know that there's some debate about who Paul is referring to here. When he refers to this I, is he referring to a Christian? Is he referring to a non-Christian? Uh, you know, maybe he's stepping into Adam's shoes and saying, I was alive before the law came. Maybe he's stepping into Israel's shoes before Mount Sinai because the law came at Mount Sinai, as in the law of Moses. Here, I think this to mean um, that Paul is talking about 
his life before he was a Christian. And he's speaking experientially. He's talking about his own life experientially about what it means, uh, what, what happened when the law came. Now, you guys are going to have to study the word as best you can, right? And then come to your own determination. Is he saying that uh, based on evidence that he's talking about a non-Christian or, or, or uh, a Christian? Um, it doesn't really affect the main point too much. His point is saying, his point is, this is what happens when the law came. Sin thrived when the law came. So there not only was, did the law expose, right? Sin was given birth there. Sin was stimulated. Uh, it ex the law exposes and informs and it also is stimulated there. Sinful passions are aroused by the law. Okay, now you still might be wondering, if the law just exposes and informs and stimulates sin, how is it not bad? How is it not bad? It sounds bad. Well, again, we've got to understand this in the big picture of things. God gives the law in order to expose our sin, inform us of our sin, and then point us to the Savior. This has been a point that we've been coming back to. And I see the love of God in that. So you can't say that the law is bad if it points us to the Savior, if it helps us reveal our need for the Savior. It is God helping us, right? He's installing this alarm system so that we would know the danger that we're in. And even those who might not know the Old Testament officially, right? You have a conscience. God has given you a conscience that is the capacity in human beings to determine right from wrong. Now, you, you need to inform your conscience according to the Word of God. But even in your conscience, God helps you understand that you are in the right or in the wrong. I, I see the love of God in that, not in sin. Keep in mind, right, that we are the ones who became lawbreakers. God didn't make us that way in the beginning. Man was made by God to be in a relationship with God, living underneath his law, but man rebelled. They sinned against God. And so here comes God helpfully giving us a law to expose, inform, and even stimulate sin. To rebellious people who had hardened hearts, who had forgotten and rejected God, God gave the law by his grace to guide us, inform us, expose people to their own sin, reminding us that he alone is God and that we ought to live under him. So the law has redemptive purposes. The law has redemptive purposes. It was not retributive, right? God's not getting back at us. No, it has redemptive purposes. God is not like an angry parent who flies off the handle and who is out to make his children's lives a living hell. The law had redemptive purposes because God was on a mission to save sinners. The law the good law was to expose our sin and help us turn to the good Savior. So we should never say, let's just be clear here, no matter what you might feel, no matter what trial you're going through, no matter what sin you're being exposed to, we should never say that God's law is bad or that it is sinful. Verse 12, you look there, we have the conclusion. It's just so clear. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. As we apply this passage to our lives, it's important to see the trajectory of the sinful heart here. You know, just think about ourselves, even though we might be 60, we're still sort of angsty tweens, maturing before God's eyes, right? This is the process of growing in holiness. Um, now, Paul, he's not writing to tweens who are upset with God and his law, but Paul knows the objections of the human heart, and we can certainly apply this here. That's why he's writing the way he does. He starts with objections, and then he knocks them down. But to those who are in any circumstance 
where you might want to accuse God and His law of being bad, here this passage just says you can't, even if God is revealing to you your sin. And you have to know that when you are exposed, it's the human instinct to want to prove yourself innocent. It is the human instinct to want to prove yourself innocent and then shift the blame back on God, just like I did with my parents. This is what the discouraged legalist does sometimes, right? I mean, just for a moment here, just imagine that you're stepping into the shoes of someone who thinks that they can actually get righteousness by doing, but then you're discouraged. Right, what do you do? What are your options there? You can either sort of pull out your bootstraps of morality and say, I'm just going to work harder, even though God is you know, making me his slave. Or you could look at God and say, whatever, your law is bad. You are bad. The law is too much. The burden is too great. God doesn't understand. God's the one who made me this way. The problem, therefore, is with God and his law. But again here, this passage pushes against that. You can't do that. It's not allowed. Not only is God good, but so are his laws. His law is holy. It is righteous. It is good, just as he is. It's not God or his law that is to blame. It is sin in the human heart, and this brings us to point number two. Point number two, blame sin in the human heart. Blame sin in the human heart. This is actually what Paul does in our passage. He says, hold on, you can't blame God or his law. Blame sin. And he's actually going to lay all of this blame on sin all the way through verse 25 here. And he uses himself as, as an example. We're going to look at that the next time we get to uh, Romans, Romans 13 to 25. But here we're just staying in our passage today. Already Paul has had us focus on the fact that um, the problem is with our own heart, right? The law came and sin was stimulated there in 7.5. He's talking about the life in the flesh. Blame the life in the flesh. The same thing as being apart from God. Same thing as being apart from Jesus Christ. Being in the flesh is what it means to be enslaved to sin, having sin as our master. Right in that state, we are ungodly. In that state, it says that we are even enemies of God. Now look at how Paul lays the blame once again on sin in verses 7 to 8. Yet if, I had not, if, it, not, had not, sorry, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, Paul says that he would not have known sin without the law. You might be wondering, what exactly does that mean? He is not saying that one only comes to know himself to be a sinner in general through a specific commandment. That's not what he's saying here. People know themselves to be sinners because of their own God-given conscience even, even if they don't have the Old Testament. And then, of course, people know themselves to be sinners because they disobey God, right? To say that, a, that, to say that somebody only comes to know themselves as a sinner only when a specific law comes, that's not what he's getting at. That would argue against what he's already writing. What he is saying is that we know ourselves to be so much more of a sinner in breaking a specific command. Now, he's writing to moralists here. He's writing to self-righteous people who think that they can earn their salvation. But for a moment here, let me illustrate the point by speaking about a rebel against a king. A rebel against the king, right? Does he know if he stands against the king? The answer is yes. Now, what if the king all of a sudden writes a new edict that says, no more burning my books? 
in the public square. What does the rebel do? I mean, you guys with rebel hearts, what are you going to do? You're going to take that edict, go to the public scare, square, and light it on fire. And so much more you will know yourself to be a sinner, breaking a specific command. That's basically what he's saying here, an official, an official transgression. Specific law comes to transgress, means to go against that specific command. So one can be a sinner, and then here, if you break a specific command, you are also a transgressor. Paul says that's basically all of us. That's what he's been saying in Romans up till now. So here the official decree comes from the ten, one of the Ten Commandments, do not covet, and he knows himself to be a coveter. One who covets, he knows himself to be all the more covetous. So, but, but look at why sin is blameworthy here. Look at why sin is blameworthy. The command comes along, and what does sin do? Okay, this is you guys. This is sin in our own beings. If you're wondering, right, how sin works in your own hearts, look at why sin is blameworthy. The command comes along, and what does it do? Sin seizes the opportunity to sin all the more by using good for evil. Sin seizes all the more. Sin seizes the opportunity by using good for evil. It's not the law that's bad. It's sin. Sin is the one who seizes. This makes me think of Genesis chapter 4. You remember where Cain kills his brother Abel? And then God says this in Genesis chapter 4, after the fall of man, he says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. That's sin working in your own hearts. If you guys know yourselves to be doing wrong, maybe you even know yourself to not be able to control the wrong that you do. The law comes. And sin seizes it as an opportunity. Sin has been seizing opportunity, meaning that sin is capitalistic with good. It is opportunistic with good to use it and to figure out some sort of way to turn it into evil. And we see this with the command in verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I mean, has your sin of outright rebellion or subtle rebellion ever seized an opportunity? Maybe you hear a law from a parent and you reject it. You use it just like I did as an opportunity to cast doubt on your parent's character to reject the one who gave you birth in that moment, forgetting about everything that has come before. Maybe you use it as an opportunity to be ungrateful, an opportunity for division to well up in your own hearts, an opportunity to hold things against your parents an opportunity to assume the worst about your parents. It's a human instinct here, guys. It's a human instinct to hear a law and then want to break it. My parents said, no, you can't, and I respond simply casting doubt on their character. Another, uh, another um, seemingly silly example here. Uh, as a little kid, I'm sure you guys can identify here, I was told on a number of different occasions, don't put metal in a light socket. Don't put metal in a light socket. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that one can get seriously injured if you did that, if you stick metal into a light socket. And I probably heard that tons of times from my parents, heard that tons of times at school, etc. And under no circumstances was I to stick metal in a light socket. The commands came. And what do I do? I broke it. I remember it clearly. I know exactly where I was, not in my room, in my brother's room. So there would be less evidence tied back to me. But I can tell you, as I was thinking about that experience, I was 
six or seven years old, um, I can remember there was a single thought that I should not do it. Not one. Not a single thought that I should not do it, but there was every thought that I ought to do it. And so I did it. Um, and by God's grace, I was not injured. It, I definitely was scared. The outlet definitely was burned, and there was certainly evidence that I had done it. I don't know if my parents ever caught me. My dad is right there. You can talk to him about that. <laughs> um, but, the, but sin, I mean, sorry, the law came, the command came, and sin seized the opportunity. As Paul recalls his pre-Christian experience here, when the command came, do not covet, sin took the opportunity, and what happened? He says, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness and the desires of the heart. I'm amazed at how foolish we are when we hear a thousand pieces of advice and wisdom and even someone who is over us give us a command, do not do this. We look over, at least in my circumstance, and say, I need to do that, actually. It is pride. It is determined foolishness. It is sin. And that's what's going on in your hearts regarding all of God's commands, actually. You might feel it for certain particular ones, but that, friends, is certainly what's going on in your heart towards God's law. Again, God and His law is not bad. Sin is bad. Don't blame God. Don't blame His law. Blame sin. It is capitalistic. It is opportunistic, looking for more opportunities to sin. Did you notice that sin sees opportunity for evil in good I want you to hate sin all the more here, guys. Sin sees opportunity for evil in the good. When is it that law seizes the opportunity in our passage? When is it that sin seizes the opportunity? It is when the law comes. Isn't that interesting? The arrival of something given by God is occasion to bring down the plans of God. Sin uses good for evil. Verse 9, when the commandment came, when the commandment came, I'll go ahead and read the whole thing again. Uh, verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Remember, he's thinking experientially. Don't import born again. Don't import he's indwelt by the Spirit. Things like this. He's just speaking experientially about when the law came and I sinned. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive. And I died. <clears throat> we can go on. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. In this situation, again, this is experiential, meaning I was living formerly apart from the law. The law comes, I sin. The main point here, the occasion for sin is in the arrival of something good. It's in the arrival of God's law. But not only is the arrival of the law an opportunity to sin, it's the instrument used by sin. Okay, you've got to think about your own hearts here. If a law comes, you know, you should know that sin is going to use that as an instrument to do its good. It's the law itself is the instrument. Verse 8, it's sin seizes the opportunity through the command. Verse 11, through the command it deceived me and killed me. This is death by something good if used according to Satan. Sin uses good for its own evil purposes. And this here makes us recall the serpent in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Satan stands in direct opposition to God, and then he uses the very things of God against God and his people. 
The serpent sees opportunity for evil in the arrival of a divine law. So in Genesis chapter 2, God there, he makes Adam, he sets him in the garden. And do you know what was in the garden? Verse 9 of chapter 2 of Genesis says, The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Right? The place was rich in food. It was rich in minerals as well, as Genesis 2 says, and also rich in livestock as God created all the, the, the beasts and stuff like that. They were put in the garden and commanded by God's grace to enjoy all of the fruits of God's grace to their glory. But the, and the, the law arrives. Genesis 2.16 says this, The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? That's God speaking to man. And then that stinking serpent, right? What does he do? The vile serpent uses God's commands against God's people. 3.1, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right? He's taking God's word and he's sort of twisting it ever so slightly and then feeding it back to man. He takes God's divine word given in order to care for God's people, in order to share how much love God has for his people and grace, saying, eat of everything you have in the garden there that I made for you. And the serpent focuses what? Not on the, not on the freedom that they have to enjoy everything, but on the one restriction that came to them. Right? If he wanted to communicate God's love for them accurately, he would have reminded Eve of God's good provision and every other tree for fruit, but he conveniently doesn't focus on that. He focuses on one, the one restriction and he spins the law and the reason God gave it in the first place. The serpent promises freedom. That's what it says there in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life. The serpent promises freedom from restriction, right? The opening of the eyes to become like God himself, determining right from wrong. You hear all of those echoes in Romans chapter 7. You hear all of those echoes in Romans chapter 7. We are all in Adam apart from Jesus Christ. We are all enslaved to sin. Just as our forebears transgress God's law because of desire, we too choose to cross God's law because of sinful desire. I don't think it's an accident that in Romans chapter 7, Paul chooses, out of, out of the Ten Commandments, out of all of God's law, he chooses covetousness, which is, can be also translated, desire. I think Paul then, in verse 9, says, while looking back at his pre-Christian days, standing in the same footsteps as Adam, same footsteps as Israel, I was once living apart from the law, is basically what he says, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Let's be clear once again. It isn't God's law that is bad. So as you face your own sin, don't blame God or His law. Friends, you've got to blame sin. Sin is a murderous liar. You look there at verse 11. It is sin that deceives by falsely representing God and His law. It is sin that kills or brings the condemnation of death by getting us to misuse the law, right? How do we misuse what is good? Our sinfulness pitches to our own legalistic side, thinking that you can earn God's favor by doing. Sin pitches to our legalistic side, saying, use God's law to achieve your own righteousness. Or our sin pitches to our anti-law side, 
and says, hey, throw away God's law because God's righteousness doesn't matter. Friends, those are all lies. Straight out of hell. Those are all lies, whether you are a legalist or whether you are anti-law. We know righteousness matters because Romans says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness. And there is none righteous, none who does good. And we know that no one will be justified apart from the works of the law. We are justified only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In terms of how we apply this to us as Christians, here we're going to move towards conclusion. In terms of how we apply this to ourselves as Christians, you know, one thing we do not want to think, you don't want to think, oh, Paul is looking at his life before he was a Christian, and so therefore it has nothing to do with me. It's not true. It still has to do with us. We have indeed died to sin, past tense. Sin is not Lord over us anymore because of the death of Jesus Christ. But we still wrestle against sin. Okay, so even though I understand chapter 7 to be him talking about his life before he became a Christian, other passages in the Bible clearly say that we wrestle with sin. That's very clear. But Christian, you have to know that you still have the urge to take what is good, the divine command, and use it for evil. You've got to know that that's in your heart, right? Number one, to think that you can obey it and therefore gain righteousness, right? Legalism. Or the second thing, once you realize that that doesn't work, you might be tempted to just throw it away. That is anti-law, but that doesn't work either. We should definitely not get rid of it. Romans 3.31 says that we are to uphold the law because, as our passage says, it is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. But why are we to uphold God's law? Now, by God's law, let's expand and just say the whole entire, any command that comes out of His Word or His Word in general. Why are we to uphold God's law? Once again, it's because every command that comes from the mouth of God comes from God Himself, who is holy, righteous, and good. Here we are reminded of Adam and Eve in the garden once again. After listening to the lies of Satan that God was somehow stingy toward her in grace, even though she was set in the orchard of God's grace, Eve saw God to be a big meanie. God was the bad lawgiver, the judge, the one out to restrict all of her fun and the so-called joy that she might have in the things she determined to be good. In that moment, someone has written, God's law was divorced from God's gracious person in both her mind and her affections. This author goes on to say, Eve sees God's law, but she lost sight of the true God himself, thus abstracting his law from his loving and generous person. She was deceived into hearing law only as negative, a negative deprivation, and not as the wisdom of a heavenly father. If Satan's mode of operation is to tear God's law apart from God's gracious person, then we ought always to keep those things together. Christians, we do this by looking to Christ who fulfills the law. We do this by looking to Christ who fulfills the law. Jesus himself said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have, come to abol- I have not come to abolish them, but have come to fulfill them. The application is the same to the legalist and the one who is anti-law. Let's look to Christ who embodies the grace of God, right? So to you legalists who think you can earn your way to salvation, you know, you might think that God makes you slave away to all of His rules and maybe you just want to hunker down and do the law all the more. Well, in God's grace, He gives you the law to prove that you can't keep it. 
And in the law, he also points us to him alone who can. That is Christ, the righteous. The law that comes from the lips of the God of grace points us to the appearance of God's grace come in the flesh. To you discouraged folks, maybe you already passed the legalistic stage. You look at God's law and you think, I can't do this anyways. This is impossible. Let's just get rid of it all. right? You've passed the hunker down and let's do the law. You already feel like you can't. Perhaps you already feel uh, hopeless and you just want to jettison God's commands, all of them. Know that God does not give you commands to kill your joy. God does not give you commands to kill your joy. Once again, He gives them to us so that we would see the Savior, so that we would be pointed to the true joy in Jesus Christ our Savior, who frees us from the law and actually enables us to live in His ways as He has already fulfilled it. When we understand that God's commands come from His gracious being, then we are able to live in the commands, walking in the path that Christ already fulfilled. We are able to uphold His commands by grace in the power of Christ's Spirit, knowing that there is forgiveness and grace even when we don't. It's when God's Word is always tied to His gracious character that we can say with King David, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So, in relation to the introduction, if you were my friend, and you had observed all that, the, that, all that my parents had given me growing up, but yet you saw me wrestle with my parents, you know, their law telling me that I couldn't go enjoy a sleepover at my friend's house and go to SeaWorld the next day. If you were my friend, wouldn't you want to tie their law with their character? Certainly they're not perfect, they're human beings, sinful people, but nevertheless, they love God. Right? Wouldn't you want to tell me, hey, look, I know that you have this one thing, but let's understand that one thing in light of everything else, in light of the fact that they are actually for you. Friends, that's what I'm trying to do right here. Yes, does God give you law? Yes. Does He tell you you're sinful? Yes. But there's good in that. He wants us to be free. And the only way you can be free is if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that we have your word. And in your word, you show us time and time again that you are faithful, that you are good, that you love your people. Father, we pray that when sometimes we might be wrestling with some sort of angst towards you, given our life situation, Lord, we pray that you would help us trust in you. We pray, Lord, that we would know that the law is not bad, but even though it exposes our sin and even stimulates sin, Lord, we pray that it would work in us exactly what you determined it to work, that we would see our need for the Savior who fulfills all of the law's demands. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise that is for we who know ourselves to be sinners, to have done no saving good before you and who know that we cannot earn salvation. We thank you for what a help the law is for us as it turns our hearts and throws us at the foot of the cross that we might know God's grace and your steadfast love given to us in the gospel. In your name we pray, amen.